He said executive privilege, even though this doesn't remotely apply to this case. He might have invoked the infield fly rule. It would have been the same thing. Yes, good point. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and AM950, KTNF in Minneapolis, St. Paul, amongst other fine terrestrial outlets. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thanks for joining us today. A quick thanks also to uh, our friend Angie Coiro of In Deep Radio for covering for us on our previous broadcast. We are back today, whether we like it or not. Hello, Desi. Hello. Like it or not? <laughs> like it or not. Okay. The world keeps turning. Yeah. And I see that in our absence, everything has gotten all better. Everything <laughs> is fine now. Why worry? Well, we've got plenty of reason uh, to discuss why worry uh, and why that worry ain't going away anytime soon around here. Of course, the battle for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination continues to play out in varying ways in much of the mainstream corporate media. Donald Trump, of course, has been running for 2020 since the day he is said to have won the 2016 election, of course. And that's all well and good, but there are still 2019 elections of note to pay attention to, including in North Carolina on Tuesday, where the 9th Congressional District is holding its primary elections for the 2018 election after its U.S. House seat remains vacant following the state refusing to certify a winner from last November's contest thanks to the Republican absentee ballot fraud operation that irreconcilably tainted the results of that race. But that's not uh, that's not the only 2018 result 
still being challenged one way or another. Last week, a challenge to the seemingly inexplicable results of Georgia's 2018 lieutenant governor's election made its way to the state Supreme Court. We will be joined a bit later by one of the plaintiffs in that case. The Coalition for Good Governance's Marilyn Marks. She will be here for an update on that case. And the state's planned move from 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems to an all-new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting system before the 2020 presidential election in a state, by the way, that is quickly moving from red to purple to maybe even blue. But first up, some news headlines from D.C. and the continuing madness of King Donald that will no doubt have an effect uh, of some type, not that anybody fully understands in what way right now, but an effect of some type on the 2020 elections. The U.S. and China escalated their trade fight on Monday with Beijing moving to raise tariffs on nearly $60 billion worth of American imports in retaliation for Donald Trump's decision to punish China with higher tariffs on a slew of imports. China's finance ministry announced that it was raising tariffs on a wide range of American goods to 20 or 25 percent from 10 percent. That in response to Trump's decision to raise tariffs to 25 percent on 200 billion dollars worth of Chinese imports. China's increase will impact the roughly 60 billion in American exports going to that country, including beer, wine, swimsuits, shirts and liquefied natural gas. Well, that last one could leave a mark. In addition to the farmers who have been hurt in this trade war to date, many in states which supported Donald Trump back in 2016, the fossil fuel industrialists may soon find themselves in even more trouble than they already are, with oil and gas prices tumbling even before the huge Chinese market enacts new tariffs to slow imports from the U.S., which is expected to sting companies here in the U.S., Desi Doyen, in states like Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, among others, who uh, had supported Donald Trump back in 2016. Yeah, I know that he's uh, planning on asking for a bailout for farmers to ease the blow of this higher new tariffs that are being imposed mm-hmm. in retaliation for his actions. I wonder if he'll do the same for the fossil for the fuel oil companies, yeah, who already get billions in taxpayer subsidies anyway, but we'll see. The uh, upshot today is that the Dow plummeted some 700 points at the start of trading on Monday. That on top of last week's losses, as Trump was then threatening the new tariffs that he did end up implementing on Friday. Tariffs that are, in fact, despite the president's repeated continuous lies about them, that are, in fact, a tax on American importers and American consumers, not what Trump describes uh, falsely as uh, billions being paid by China into the U.S. Treasury Department's coffers. That, that is not true. There are billions coming into our coffers from this, but it is coming from U.S. companies and U.S. consumers who are paying the tax increase that Trump has unilaterally imposed on incoming Chinese goods. On Monday, the Dow ultimately closed down more than 600 points. 
its biggest one-day loss since January. The S&P and NASDAQ also had their worst performances so far this year. Dow stalwarts like Boeing and Caterpillar, whose core business is is particularly dependent on on China, they were down four and a half and five point three percent respectively on Monday. The U.S. tech sector, however, took the heaviest blow. Apple, United Technologies, and Cisco are all down around five percent. In addition to raising tariffs on Friday, Trump now says he's proceeding with another threat to impose a 25 percent tariff on all of the rest of the goods that China exports to the U.S. That's roughly $300 billion worth of Chinese products. American companies are fearful that China might resort to still other methods to retaliate beyond their own tariffs. A uh, tabloid owned by the Chinese Communist Party on Monday tweeted that China might halt purchases altogether of American ag, uh, agriculture and energy products and Boeing aircraft and restrict offerings of American services in China, financial services, for example, and others. The paper's uh, well-connected chief editor there also cited unidentified Chinese scholars speculating that China might sell some of its large holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds, shaking up global markets even further at this point, and, as many are worrying, ultimately perhaps inducing a recession. The retaliation from the Chinese finance ministry on Monday comes after Trump on Friday imposed those new taxes on Some 5,700 categories of Chinese-made goods that were bound for the U.S., on which U.S. importers and ultimately U.S. consumers will now have to pay a 25% tariff, up from 10%. After China and the U.S. failed to reach a deal during high-level trade talks in D.C. last week, Trump challenged Beijing tweeting a warning over the weekend on Twitter that, quote, the deal will become far worse for them if it has to be negotiated in my second term. Would be wise for them to act now, but love collecting, in all caps, big tariffs. Now, setting aside that second term comment that may have run a chill down your spine just now, uh, (laughs) please remember those big tariffs that he loves collecting all come from you. You will be paying those new taxes on Chinese goods, not China. And if you wonder how much that's going to cost you, well, you know what? Go around, uh, go around your house right now, go around the room you're in or your car and Pick them up and look where I'll, I'll bet at least four out of five of those products are actually made. And that includes stuff, by the way, that's made in America, but with Chinese parts. So, uh, yeah, this is going to cost the U.S. a lot. That's where we are in Trump's foreign trade war war at the moment. His domestic war and constitutional crisis with Congress, thanks to his unprecedented obstruction of lawful oversight by the legislative branch, that continues to worsen as well. Washington Post stepped out of the trees momentarily to uh, take a look at the full forest of administrative 
obstruction in a weekend analysis. According to the paper's count, President Trump and his allies are working to now block more than 20 separate investigations by Democrats into his actions as president, his personal finances, and his administration's policies, amounting to what many experts call the most expansive White House obstruction effort in U.S. history. Trump's non-cooperation strategy has shifted from partial resistance to all-out war, the paper says, as he faces mounting inquiries from the Democratic-controlled House. All told, House Democrats say the uh, Trump administration has failed to respond to or comply with at least 79 requests for documents or other information. Trump is now blocking aides from testifying, refusing entire document requests from some committees, filing lawsuits against private corporations to try and bar them from responding to lawful subpoenas and asserting executive privilege to keep information about the special counsel Russia, uh, counsel's Russia investigation from public view. One such case uh, comes to a head in court on Tuesday when a federal judge is expected to rule on whether Trump can quash a House Oversight Committee subpoena demanding financial records from Trump's personal accounting firm, Mazars. And then there'll be another subpoena deadline on Friday for Trump's tax returns following the administration's move to refuse access to them despite a 1924 law that requires they be turned over to Congress, no subpoena or uh, even reason necessary for invoking that law. Trump signaled over the weekend, however, that he will continue to refuse disclosure of his tax returns because he says he's being audited by the IRS, uh, though that would not preclude uh, the, the release of these documents. It, in fact, has zero to do with anything, even if it is true. Who knows if it is? Uh, interestingly, Kerry Kircher, according to Washington Post, uh, who served as House counsel for the last Republican majority in the House, said that this uh, standoff now marks, quote, a complete breakdown and complete obstruction of Congress's role. That echoes something that Ted Kahlo, the former general counsel for the House Judiciary Committee, told us on this show a little over a week ago. Now we're hearing the exact same thing from the House counsel uh, for the Republicans, or at least the previous one. Uh, Kircher said if the courts uh, if the court signs off on this stuff, then we'll have an imperial presidency. We'll have a presidency that will be largely unchecked. Democrats are probing what they consider to be legitimate congressional issues, uh, oversight issues from uh, hurricane recovery effort in uh, in Puerto Rico to the administration's family separation policy at the border, Trump's attempt to build a border wall without congressional approval. Dems are examining dozens of actions involving administration policies rather than Trump himself. For example, the House and Energy Committee has sent out more than 30 oversight requests to agencies that are responsible for health, environment and consumer protection issues. They are also being stonewalled. The uh, post-analysis of the Democratic inquiries and other records identified more than 20 investigations directly connected to Trump his family, or the White House that have been met with partial or complete stonewalling by the administration. In the past week alone, as you know, 
Trump and the White House blocked three major inquiries, uh, rebuffing requests for his tax returns, refusing to turn over an unredacted version of the Mueller report, and barring uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn from responding to a Hill subpoena. I don't think it can be underscored how much Republicans are going along with this. Republicans in the House are not raising hell about this, and Republicans in the Senate are not saying peep about it as well. That's elected Republicans. As I noted, that former uh, GOP uh, uh, general counsel, he's willing to speak out. Another former Republican, Tom Campbell, Former Republican congressman, now a uh, professor at Chapman University, said that the Democrat, uh, Democratic inquiries of Trump are totally justifiable. He said these are perfectly legitimate oversight functions. He says no system works, even one as brilliantly constructed as the U.S. Constitution. No system works without good faith. When good faith falls apart, the ability for the Constitution to work is compromised. Well, when you are dealing with a con man and criminal obstructionist like Donald Trump, you are no longer dealing in good faith. Nothing like it. So, yes, our Constitution is now both compromised and in crisis. Which means to me, at least, that uh, little else seems to matter politically right now uh, other than what are congressional Democrats going to do about this in the short term and as importantly, if not more so, what are voters going to do about it in the slightly longer term? Let's take a quick break and we will turn to that sticky wicket here uh, with some good news. Some good news for a change for voters out of a court in Florida. An election on Tuesday in North Carolina following last November's GOP absentee ballot election fraud scandal in a U.S. House race. And uh, the hearing before the Georgia Supreme Court last week regarding more than 100,000 apparently missing votes from the state's election for lieutenant governor last November. All of that and more straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. All right, let's have, let's have a bit of good news uh, today among all the grim headlines here for at least a moment. Uh, something that I think bodes well, well, definitely bodes well for voters in the state of Florida in 2020 and perhaps uh, more specifically voters who are likely to oppose 
Donald J. Trump's re-election bid if he actually has one. Advocates for Spanish-speaking voters in Florida are celebrating a big win on Friday. After District uh, Federal District Judge Mark Walker issued an order requiring 32 of the state's 67 counties to provide election materials and assistance to Spanish-speaking voters before the 2020 presidential primary. The decision comes after several civic engagement groups and individuals uh, sued the state's secretary of state and election supervisors last year for what they said was a violation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because they were not making available bilingual voting materials and assistance to the state's growing number of Spanish speakers. This is uh, particularly important for Puerto Rican voters who have now moved to the state after fleeing the devastation of 2017's Hurricane Maria. Puerto Ricans, in case you or the president or the uh, state of Florida did not know, are U.S. citizens, and though the island has no electoral college votes itself, if residents move to the mainland, they can register and vote in their state of residency. Many have, in fact, moved to Florida but many of those raised on the island speak only uh, Spanish or primarily Spanish. After uh, Hurricane Maria ravaged Puerto Rico, uh, more than 56,000 Puerto Ricans relocated to Florida, a state which, as you know, has often very close statewide elections. Those Puerto Ricans joined a massive wave that began back in 2006, uh, boosting Florida's Puerto Rican population from about 479,000 in 2000 to over 1 million in 2015. So this is a lot of voters that we're talking about. And so Judge Walker's ruling here uh, could be key in next year's elections. He had a he issued a similar order ahead of the 2018 midterm elections, but uh, did not require that Florida officials provide bilingual voting materials for future elections. So now it will uh, have to supply those uh, materials before the 2020 primaries. And then the uh, plaintiffs and the defendants are still trying to work out a permanent solution that will guarantee voters access to Spanish language materials in all future elections in Florida. But for now, good news before the 2020 primaries in the Sunshine State. And speaking of primaries, it's primary election day in the do-over election in North Carolina's 9th district on Tuesday. There's only one candidate in the race representing the Democratic Party and the Green Party and the Libertarian Party. So all of those candidates will be in the general election. But the 10-person Republican free-for-all on Tuesday in their Republican primary, that's expected to lead to the most expensive special election of the year when the GOP nominee ultimately battles against Democrat Dan McCready, who came up just over 900 votes short of Republican Baptist preacher Mark Harris last November. But the race uh, was not certified by the state, which refused to do so after it was discovered that Harris had hired a shady GOP absentee ballot contractor who has now been criminally charged for, among other things, illegally collecting and altering uh, absentee ballots in Bladen County and elsewhere in the 9th District in North Carolina. 
Now, I won't offer any spoilers here, but if you watched Sunday night's uh, series finale of Veep on HBO, you may have some sense of the circus that we are now looking at on the Republican uh, side of the primary aisle on Tuesday with 10 kind of crazy folks of all stripes running for the nomination. Um, I'm hoping, by the way, that that episode of Veep uh, does not prove to be a preview of the Democratic convention next year. Good Lord, Desi I hope Doyen. not. <laughs> it's worth your time watching that uh, one. Yeah, but uh, given the number of candidates who are running in the Democratic side, uh, well, anyway, we'll worry about that another time. <laughs> we got other things to worry about today. So for now, 10 Republicans are duking it out for that nomination after uh, the uh, previous Republican candidate, uh, Harris and Preacher, uh, stunned the state election board by walking out in the middle of his public testimony a few months ago, just after his own son testified against him, that he knew this contractor that he had hired, a guy by the name of McCray Dowless, had a history of absentee ballot election fraud back when Harris did hire him. So in that mess, five people, including Dowless, have been arrested for participating in the scheme. The debacle also led to the ouster of the GOP executive chairman, Dallas Woodhouse. But on Tuesday in the Republican contest to take what was Harris's place in the upco- upcoming uh, unprecedented do-over U.S. House election, one candidate must get more than 30 percent of the vote in order to advance directly to the general election. That's currently scheduled for September. If no one gets more than 30 percent, however, there will be a runoff election held in September and the general election will then be moved to November, November 5. With that House seat, U.S. House seat being vacant for a full year since last year's November. So we'll be watching those results closely in the days ahead. So that's a 2018 election being held again in 2019. But there are still some 2018 races that, at least for now, have yet to be fully settled. Marilyn Marks, a registered Republican, by the way, from the Coalition for Good Governance. She joins us next for her State Supreme Court to discuss her state Supreme Court challenge last week to the Peach State's lieutenant governor's race from last November, where more than 100,000 votes are seemingly missing. And the Republican governor and lieutenant governor said to have won last year just jammed the nation's most extreme anti-abortion measure through the state house. All of that is next on the Bradcast. Don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Georgia, Georgia, oh Georgia, the whole day through, yes, the whole day through, week through, year through, welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On our previous show, Angie Coiro 
uh, who was sitting in for us. She had a great conversation with two reproductive rights advocates regarding the spate of anti-abortion measures that are being adopted across the country right now, that Republicans, uh, now that they have stolen a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, they feel they will be willing to use to try and overturn Roe v. Wade at the high court. Of course, the uh, Roe v. Wade ruling guarantees a federal constitutional right to have an abortion. If you missed that show with Angie uh, and that enlightening discussion, it's worth downloading and listening to from bradblog.com if you like. It comes on the heels of Georgia's new Republican governor, formerly their secretary of state, Brian Kemp, signing the most aggressive anti-choice law in the nation just last week. According to AP, though it comes as no surprise, uh, opponents of a Georgia law banning abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected are now taking their fight from the state capitol to the courthouse. Signed last Tuesday by Kemp, the measure is one of the nation's most restrictive abortion laws and would effectively ban the procedure around six weeks of pregnancy before many women even know they are pregnant. The legal director of the ACLU of Georgia has said the measure is unconstitutional and the group is challenging it in court. Sean Young, uh, the uh, legal director, said under 50 years of Supreme Court precedent, this abortion ban is clearly unconstitutional. Every federal court that has heard a challenge to a similar ban has ruled that it's unconstitutional. But Kemp's signing uh, caps weeks of uh, tension and protests against this measure at the state capitol and begins what would uh, what will certainly be a lengthy and costly legal battle. Kemp said, we will not back down, acknowledging the legal challenge. Current law allows women in Georgia to seek an abortion during the first 20 weeks of pregnancy. But if the bill is not blocked in court, the new ban would take effect on January 1. Democratic Senator Jen Jordan, state Senator Jen Jordan, called the measure an all-out abortion ban. In the first few months of 2019, so-called heartbeat abortion bans have been signed into law in four states, Mississippi, Kentucky, Ohio, and now Georgia. Lawmakers in other states, including Tennessee, Missouri, South Carolina, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, and West Virginia, are considering similar proposals. Yes, elections matter. A bill that recently passed the uh, Alabama House would outlaw abortions at any stage of pregnancy, with a few narrow exceptions. Kentucky's law was immediately challenged by the ACLU after it was signed in March, and a federal judge temporarily blocked it. Earlier versions of the law passed in North Dakota and Iowa have also been struck down in court. But yes, elections matter. None of this would have happened in Georgia, at least, had Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams won her election last November against Brian Kemp after Kemp, as secretary of state, overseeing his own reported election victory against Abrams, was found by courts in the state repeatedly to have been suppressing voters in what was a very tight race. Whether Kemp actually won that race for governor over Stacey Abrams, well, we will likely never know, given that Georgia still uses 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems for all voters at the polling place. And Kemp 
has been supportive of a new bill that would replace those 17-year-old unverifiable Diebold touchscreen systems with all new 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems, unless advocates can somehow convince the state to use verifiable hand-marked paper ballots at the polls, just as they have been using without any problems for many years in their absentee ballot system. But where the unverifiable results showed Kemp defeating Abrams last year, the system also revealed an inexplicable statistic in the lieutenant governor's race, which was also said to have been won by the Republican. Jeff Duncan reportedly defeated Democrat Sarah Riggs Amico by 123,000 votes. But as the nonpartisan Coalition for Good Governance and several other plaintiffs allege, there were about 127,000 fewer votes casted, or at least counted, than expected compared with previous elections, compared to other statewide contests on the ballot on the same day, many much farther down on the ballot, and compared to the hand-marked absentee paper ballots, which showed no such inexplicable drop-off in votes in the lieutenant governor's race. Vote totals, for example, were higher in other down-ballot races, like Secretary of State, Attorney General, Agriculture Commissioner, and Insurance Commissioner than they were in the lieutenant governor's race. So what happened here? Why the huge undervote rate and only in lieutenant governor's race and only on those votes cast on these unverifiable touchscreen systems? There seems to be no real explanation by experts except that something may have gone wrong in those voting systems, which the plaintiffs in a case filed against the state hope to have experts examine via forensic analysis. But for some reason, Kemp and the state are fighting that independent analysis tooth and nail. And several months ago, in January of this year, Georgia's senior Superior Court judge Adele Grubbs dismissed the lawsuit challenging the lieutenant governor's race altogether, disallowing the plaintiffs from even carrying out their discovery, which was to include such an independent forensic analysis. We discussed the case at the time with the Coalition for Good Governance Executive Director Marilyn Marks, who vowed back then to appeal the uh, lower court ruling to the state Supreme Court, which she did. And that argument was heard last week in Georgia's high court. So how did it go? Well, joining us now with some answers, maybe, is Marilyn Marks. As I said, she is the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance and a longtime expert advocate for free and fair elections. The uh, coalition is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization committed to fair elections and government transparency. Marilyn Marks, welcome back to the broadcast. It has seems like it's been a while. It has, Brad, but not a lot has changed, unfortunately. Uh, uh, we're still having the same old problems in Georgia. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so before we discuss how things went uh, at, at the uh, Supreme Court last week, did I adequately hit the key elements in your argument as to why uh, your case should be allowed to move forward uh, and that uh, the uh, Superior Court Judge Grubbs was wrong in denying your team of expert 
uh, uh, discovery here, much less tossing out the uh, case entirely. Are there any key data points that uh, folks should know about that I missed? Well, it is, um, you, you did a great um, high-level summary, Brad. Um, I would say that it wasn't just our speculation that something went wrong with the machine. Mm-hmm. You know, we had statisticians, the premier election statisticians in the United States, look at this. And they basically said, it's, you know, it would be one in 10,000 chance that something wasn't happening in the machine that would have caused this kind of result. When you compare the paper ballot result with the DRE result, I mean, it is clear that something happened with those machines that caused a very, very strange um, result, had this, all these undervotes mm-hmm. in one race. And then the thing that, you know, I, in my 10 years, Brad, of working on election security, mm-hmm. the thing that has me the most troubled, I've never done anything that approaches the importance of getting to the bottom of this, mm. and that is the impact on the African-American community, mm. that the undervotes were far more severe in the lieutenant governor's race in the African-American communities than in the white communities with the same demographics. And this turned out not to be a, just a non-white issue. This mm-hmm. did not happen this way in Asian-American communities, Latino communities. It wasn't Democrats, because we looked at the communities that were, um, let's say, um, Democratic, mm-hmm. affluent, white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen there. I mean, it happened across the state, but it didn't happen with the intensity that it did in the African-American neighborhoods. And let's remember, it wasn't just an undervote where people voted for governor, didn't vote for lieutenant governor, and then failed to continue to vote. No, these are votes where they, the voter continued to vote all the way down the ballot. But this one very big, very important race, Mm-hmm. Somehow didn't get voted on. And, Let me say one more thing. Sure. Tying back, excuse me. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, please. Um, you were. Is, I think you were talking earlier in your program mm-hmm. about the abortion bill yeah. in in Georgia. Yep. Okay. So what many people don't know, Brad, is that the lieutenant governor, which is which is the race where we saw all these hundred and twenty seven thousand missing votes mm-hmm. in Georgia, the lieutenant governor is the person who controls what legislation is getting to the floor. Mm. So the, that case... The lieutenant governor... So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, no, <laughs> so that, I mean, that's a, that's a key point here. Had that case, you know, I made the argument that uh, it, it likely would not have been signed, it almost certainly would not have been signed into law had Stacey Abrams uh, won... Uh, the the governorship, but the the bill itself wouldn't have even come up before the legislature had the Democrat here, Sarah Riggs Amico, been the uh, been the lieutenant governor. Is That's that probably correct? I can't speak for her, uh-huh. um, but um, she would have. Let's put it this way: she would have at least forced it to be a very very fair and deliberate and slowly thought out process. 
Now, I, I know that uh, reading questions, you know, from uh, Supreme Court judges, justices, whether they're U.S. Supreme Court justices or those in the high court in Georgia, you know, is, is like reading tea leaves. But what did we learn from the oral argument last week as you presented your case? There was some uh, dubious uh, justices, and I want to hit some of their specific questions. But overall, what did we uh, what did you, you learn from the questioning of those justices? Well, we learned that this was of very great interest to them. Um, one of the reporters, uh, one of the legal reporters mm-hmm. here called it a hot bench um, because the moment that um, any of the lawyers stood up, um, they were just peppered with questions. So the justices were very interested in the facts. Um, they... Um, it luckily did not seem to really have any a particular bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it was unfortunate that the record had been so poorly developed down at the trial court because they were having to, to make a lot of assumptions they wouldn't normally have to make. Mm. And so that, that the very fact the record was not well developed, I think, must have... Um, have sat with them. I hope it did. And I hope that they see that um, there was just not a real trial here. Well, um, and that the, the, the state of Georgia can do a whole lot better. And that was sort of a point that your, that your attorney uh, made reportedly that uh, Bruce Brown uh, had argued that in, in this appeal to the uh, Georgia Supreme Court that the lower court judge erred by not allowing discovery prior to any trial. He said uh, the results we're seeking is a fair trial, not to win right. that fair trial. So he says that basically the argument is here, please let us do proper discovery to determine what may have happened, if the machines malfunctioned, if they were messed with by right. anybody. But you guys weren't even allowed to get that far uh, in the court. So you're not trying to overturn the the, the decision by the lower court uh, saying that, oh, you're wrong. You're just trying to have an actual trial, if I understand it. Exactly right. That's, that is all we want. And if we can't prove our case, then we should be dismissed. Mm-hmm. But um, we strongly believe we can prove our case if we are given some of the simplest tools. They would not give us the um, the GEMS database. Well, you know what that is. Maybe some of your listeners don't know that it's just a master worksheet of how the ballot's laid out, what mm-hmm. the tabulation instructions are, how many people you can vote for. In it's, a the, race, it's the overall sort of uh, election management system that tracks uh, who gets to vote, who did vote, who they voted for. It's sort of the central brain of the the, the computer uh, system, uh, essentially. Well, the, 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 the GEMS um, programs are, yes. Mm-hmm. But what I'm really talking about here is a subset of that. Mm-hmm. And the subset is a simple... Uh, worksheet, an access database uh, worksheet. And that was the first thing we wanted. There's not one thing in there that's private. I mean, it doesn't talk about voters and have any voter information in it. This just shows, you know, the votes that were collected, but it also shows how the ballots were laid out, what kind of coding there was between the, the, uh, the candidates' names mm-hmm. and where the votes were to be registered, what what column, what row sure. was going to register the votes. And that should have been a piece of cake 
for them to turn over to us. Yeah. And they fought us and fought us and fought us. She ordered them to turn it over. They didn't do it, and she would not force them to do it. Wait, so they wouldn't you know, even turn over that information? The judge you says you must, right. and they don't, and you the judge what? I got was that fine wrong. with that? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I, I said that wrong. They, she, that was not what she, she should have told them that, because ah. there, was, there was nothing private in there. What she did tell them to turn over was the internal memory that did have a lot more proprietary information. Mm-hmm. She told them to turn over the internal memory, as well as just some... Five public records reports that they had offered would tell us everything we know, needed to know. They didn't even turn those up. We got there to, to do the test or to do the, um, the inspection of the internal memories that she had ordered. Mm-hmm. She had said what machines we could look at. We had our expert fly in. They went to look and... Uh, Fulton County said, nope, 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 you can't look. You cannot look. And uh, we never heard anything about this. And here, you can look at these memory cards displayed on these machines, but you can't look at the internal. Well, what did the judge say and when so you, were de- you're, wouldn't... you're defying, uh, they were defying a, a court order? The judge's order didn't, uh, I would think that would upset the judge. <laughs> we thought so, too. But she was not inclined to want to hear any of it. What happened is we filed a motion to compel. Mm -hmm. She ignored it. When we got to the courtroom the morning of the trial, we had been trying and trying to postpone the trial until we could get evidence. We got to the courtroom the morning of the trial, and Bruce Brown, the attorney, said, Your Honor, we have a motion to compel that is pending. We don't have the evidence here. We we haven't been given the documents that you were requested or the inspections. Mm -hmm. She says, I've ruled on that. And that's that. Well, she hadn't ruled on it. She had made no ruling. And we tried to tell her we had no ruling about this. And she just says, I've denied it and basically said to shut up. And that's just Um, amazing to me that, uh, you know, if if this played out as you describe, I would think how many uh, justices are there on the uh, Georgia Supreme Court? I I presume this was all of the justices heard the case? Nine? Yes, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And did they have any uh, concerns about the fact that even the uh, lower court's orders were being uh, disobeyed, essentially, by the uh, by the defendants here? Um, I think that they were concerned about that. It's you know it's hard to read mm-hmm. in their questions um, uh, what what their concerns are, but we tried to make it clear in our supplemental briefings and that sort of thing um, that um, that we were not given what the judge required, nor even what Fulton and the Secretary of State in Gwinnett County offered to give. Uh-huh. They said, okay, we will even offer you these public records. They didn't even give us those. But, you know, one of the weird things, the dynamics of this trial, Brad, were extremely strange. And what you will see in our um, filings and briefs with the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. we told the Supreme Court several times, that during the trial, when we were begging for discovery, begging for a jury trial, begging for a continuance, because we, you know, they had been blocking everything we were doing, mm-hmm. the judge said, look, I'm getting pressure to get this resolved. So, no, you cannot have the documents, you can't have a continuance, and you can't have a jury trial. Pressure from whom? Aha, uh-huh, we don't know. She didn't disclose that. Okay. But um, that that alone is reason to 
you know, for abuse of discretion that is yeah. a, a reason to reverse her. Well, I, and certainly we've asked that it be, she be reversed on refusing to allow discovery in what little bit of time. She, she issued her ruling on a Friday. Yeah. With Thursday being the next day, being the, excuse me, the trial date. And we kept saying, there's not enough time, even if we get this stuff. And she didn't give us time to even, we never even received it, much less look at it. If you're successful. And so we're asking that to be overturned as well. If you're, if you're successful at the uh, Supreme Court, state Supreme Court level here, and they overturn the, uh, the lower judge's ruling, essentially throwing out this case, um, would it be this same judge, who seems to me to be a terrible judge, under pressure from someone, who knows, would, would it be the same judge who would oversee the case? Well, we, we have asked for a new judge, and, mm-hmm. and as you know, that is a very, very unusual thing to do. Things have to be pretty critical to, um, to step up and ask for a new judge. Right. But we felt like um, that there was that that was essential in this case. Um, and in our, in our um, brief that we filed at about 5 o'clock this morning, our final brief, we basically said that her capricious and arbitrary rulings, you know, really just that is um, the way that she handled this entire case in a, such a capricious way. And that this is just not the way that the votes of several million Georgians yeah. should be handled. And, and you this know, is a very sobering issue. It, it, you know, it is. But you can add it to a long list. I've talked, uh, you know, over the past two years uh, constantly. For example, about the difficulty that. Uh, Green Party uh, presidential candidate Jill Stein had in trying to get a uh, a post-election recount of some sort in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, trying to get some sort of forensic analysis. She was blocked in all three of those states in various ways, underscoring why it's so important, as I've said for years, to get it right on election night, because it is impossible to do so afterwards, it seems, if there are any questions about the results and there are certainly questions clear questions about the results we're talking you know more than a hundred thousand votes that seem to simply be missing mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. lieutenant governor's race this is maddening Marilyn I've got uh, I've got just a few minutes here and I want to hit uh, sort of two or three quick points here related uh, one the AP is reporting that uh, the access uh, the access that you guys had sought uh, raised security concerns uh, from I guess the, the 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 governor, the secretary of state, I'm wondering what security concerns they were uh, even claiming here. Because if Georgia is moving to a new system anyway, that I'll ask you about in a second, uh, isn't that argument now moot? If they're not going to use this one anymore, what does it matter if you uh, find out secrets about the previous one? <laughs> Well, of course, they are going to use it for quite a while to come because it'll be a while before they get the new system in. And so we are we are arguing it is certainly not moot. But they're crazy with this, this claim about the security concerns. What we wanted first and in, in, uh, most importantly mm-hmm. was the GEMS database. The GEMS database is a public record in many jurisdictions. I mean, out in Pima County, Arizona, Mm-hmm. They, their Democratic Party, for example, gets every single copy of the Jones database 
and analyzes it for their parties and for their candidates. You know, you can find Marin County's mm-hmm. Jim's database in, mm-hmm. um, uh, in a web link. Um, you know, what we wanted was in no way secret. It didn't have source code. What they're afraid of is that we will see in it the configuration errors mm. that they made mm. and how it was that these votes came to be in the wrong place and missing. And they, you know, <laughs> that's their security issue. <laughs> it's their job security. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, have, have the, <laughs> if, if you have a, uh, a positive ruling from the uh, Georgia Supreme Court here, uh, and they say, sure, yeah, you can go back, you can have this trial, you can have your experts uh, do an en- independent forensic analysis of the whole system. Uh, have the machines uh, that were used in November of 2018 uh, and or the memory cards and or the, you know, the tabulators themselves, have they been quarantined this whole time since November? Could they have, could the data on them have been scrubbed by now? I mean, there were additional elections since then, no? Well, they would have been violating federal law to do so. But, um, you know, we have had a very difficult time with them in terms of records, uh, electronic records preservation. We know we're going to end up with fights with them on what's called spoliation of, you know, destroying evidence. However, the GEMS databases that we were looking for, they, should, they will be preserved. And they will give us a lot of clues, Brad. Um, you know, this kind of master programming worksheet, configuration worksheet. Um, by law, one has to stay sealed, just one copy, to be sealed with the superior clerk in every county. Mm-hmm. And so um, that will be there. I mean, there are plenty of extra copies that they should have, but I feel sure that those will still be around. But you're right, on the machines themselves and the memory cards, Never mind that they're supposed to be preserving these for our federal case. Right. We don't think that they have been, despite Judge Totenberg's uh, preservation order. And uh, and that's another, a separate case where you're challenging uh, the machines overall and the new system now that Georgia is uh, planning to move to. Uh, I know they've moved forward with those uh, plans to an all-new voting system, though as we have discussed with you, Marilyn Marks, on the show, the system that they're planning to move to has many of the very same problems. Uh, that the exactly. current system has. It's a, it's a so-called ballot marking device, or BMD, where the voters use a touchscreen to have a computer mark a paper ballot rather than using a hand-marked paper ballot, which means no one can actually know if the marks on that ballot actually reflect the intent of the voters or not. And uh, mm-hmm. cybersecurity and voting systems experts have all said uh, that these systems are also unverifiable after an election, just like the one you're f- still fighting with uh, in Georgia that they put in place in 2002. So uh, where is the state now on that bill that that, that move to those new systems that you've been raising hell trying to warn people about, not just in Georgia, by the way, but other jurisdictions like Philadelphia, my own county here in Los Angeles, which are moving to these unverifiable systems. Where are they in in Georgia right now uh, before 2020 in that regard? Okay, so um, Governor Kemp has signed the bill they're in the process of the procurement um, uh, bid analysis, and um, we are hoping that things will go off the rails there because they wrote the bill in such a way, unintentionally, no doubt, that the two top vendors, including their favorite vendor, ESNS, mm-hmm. are actually 
the language of the bill does not permit their equipment. They wrote the bill just with the wrong traces in it. Oh. And so the top two vendors' equipment cannot be used really? if they follow the law. Oh. And so we are hopeful that that's this a big thing if is going to go in, off the that's rails. A, that's a big if in Georgia, Maryland. <laughs> well, it is. So we're hoping that some of the counties who are realizing yeah. that they should not be using these machines will yeah. sue the, the state. But maybe I haven't shared with you yet that in our case in front of Judge Totenberg, we have told her, and she is expecting, that when they do um, select a system, we will be filing a motion for a preliminary injunction with her to stop them from from implementing it. But we first need to know that they actually signed a contract and she, before, before we... Before you can uh, make those filings, and, and I should note Judge right. Totenberg, that is a federal case, also in Georgia, uh, over these machines, but yes. that's a federal court, uh, and, and she seems to have been much more sympathetic to your concerns about Georgia elections yes. than uh, Judge Grubbs was in the uh, in the state court. Uh, okay, i got to get right. out here, uh, Marilyn, but when is, and so I, I will continue to talk to you about this, and I would continue to tell everyone else, uh, you know, whether you live in Georgia or in any other jurisdiction where they are moving to these touchscreen computer systems and they'll tell you, oh, it's got paper ballots. Well, they're computer marked paper ballots. So you cannot know if they actually reflect the will of the voter. Don't be fooled. That's right. Fight them like hell wherever you are, because we've only got one Maryland uh, and she's in Georgia right now. We need to clone her everywhere. Uh, but join that fight. Follow Marilyn on, on Twitter at Marilyn R. Marks 1. Uh, I'd also recommend you follow Jenny Cohen, who has been very good, very loud on this uh, issue on Twitter as well. Uh, and some other folks we've had, uh, you know, computer experts, uh, Rich DeMillo from Georgia Tech on this show who are fighting this. We all need to fight this together right now. Marilyn, when is the ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court uh, due to come back when we learn if you're even allowed to have a trial on this uh, lieutenant governor issue? You know, Brad, we have no idea. There is no there is no set due date. They could rule this afternoon or it could be a month or it could be six months. So, right. you know, um, I'm sure this is one given the political um, the political pressures all around, I'm sure that they will deliberate on this one long and hard. And you mind penciling in a uh, date with the broadcast on the uh, the next day after that uh, ruling comes it, out to tell it, us about it. It will be done. It will be done, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank for, you for letting people know about what's going on here. You you bet. Thank you for your important work. I'd also point folks to your website, coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. Please help support their efforts with financial donations. Do. I can't tell you how important the work that Marilyn is doing really is to this country. That's why we have her on so frequently. Thanks, Marilyn. Keep up the good fight. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Okay, I got to get out. So thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yep. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, along with all the other shows we have ever done. You can also drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. I hope you will find and follow me and share what we do here on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where I can be found at the Brad Blog. And as ever, most important, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com 
slash donate to sign up for a sustaining uh, pledge of any amount you like to help us stay on your public airwaves. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.